Hey everybody, Luke McElroy from Mess Performance Consulting, back with another Physiology Secrets, episode number 63. Now I understand it's been a long time since we've done an episode, uh, so today what we're going to do is, you might notice to my right, your left, that we have uh, a new addition to the Mets team. We're going to introduce Tyler, talk a little bit about what his role is in the company. Then we're going to go over to Nick to talk about the new format for Physiology Secrets. So it's going to come back bigger, better, and, and more consistent, most importantly than ever. Yep. And then we're going to talk about blood doping. So depending on when you're watching this, there's a lot, lot going on in the media about some athletes being a little bit naughty and getting caught out with blood doping. So we'll go into that as well. So without further ado, I'm just going to flick straight over to uh, Nick to quickly talk about the new format. And then Tyler can talk about what he's doing in the company. So, yeah, exactly right. Hope yeah, cool. Good. So new format for Physiology Secrets, as you, if you're watching this on Facebook or YouTube, you notice that it's a video version, so we're gonna be putting up a video version as well as the traditional podcast that we have been doing um, up on Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Uh, that may expand as well if we do choose some other platforms as well. But a number of different ways you now can watch, watch the podcast. It's gonna be up consistently on a Thursday night. Um, so each week we'll be putting up one episode a week and they're gonna go for about 20 minutes to half an hour, so slightly longer episode. A um, bit more of a conversational style, so a couple of different voices in. Uh, I'll be hosting a predominant uh, amount of episodes. Um, and then we'll be bringing experts in as well. So we're looking at getting some uh, leaders in the field uh, in their own aspects, whether that be uh, biomechanics, whether it be swimming, whatever it is, uh, that, that we feel they're probably a better addition to what we're gonna talk about in the podcast. We'll be bringing them in as well, uh, as well as the three of us uh, talking through, may get some athletes on at some point um, and just change up a bit. So a bit more consistency, slightly longer episodes, but then also that um, week to week, you're going to get video as well, so a number of different ways you can watch it on whatever platform you are on. Awesome, so just to clarify that, Nick, so every Thursday we're putting every out, Thursday night. every yeah. single Thursday, every yep. week, yep. 7 p.m. or you about, se about 7 o'clock, yeah, uh, right. consistent time every week. Lock it in your diaries, Thursday nights we will have a new episode, a little bit longer, so there'll be less of the, the short, sharp, six or seven minute uh, podcast that I do, it's going to be more this sort of format where you can obviously listen to a podcast or a video as well. Q&A, what's to go with that? Q&A, so once a month we're going to have a Ask Mets uh, podcast episode which is basically uh, any questions that you have that you want to ask us or potentially any experts that we brought in, um, feel free to send those through if you want to comment on the Facebook post or send them through through a, a direct message, an email, however you want to get in contact with us. Um, our Mets Mastermind group is a great place to ask your questions as well. Um, we'll be answering those questions, a couple of questions, three, three to five, and we'll cover everything about uh, what you want to know. So leaving that completely open to you guys to sort of to guide that in terms of what questions you want. Already had quite a few questions come through from uh, sort of earlier and sort of late last year as well that we're going to cover off in the first couple of episodes, but more than welcome to see your questions through already, uh, anything endurance performance related. Yeah, cool. So this is a quick summary. So it's a new format. Nick will be the host. He's going to get experts on depending on what we're talking about. So I will still be regularly on the podcast talking about physiology. Um, there are limitations to my knowledge. I'm not the best for S&C, so we'll get someone on. We'll get a Paul McKinnon from The Balanced Runner to talk yeah. about running economy. So we're going to get experts in. It's still specifically based on endurance physiology and endurance athletes, but we're just going to get a, a larger spread of people and get some case studies in and all that sort of stuff. Uh, awesome. So that's all good. So for the moment, just email nick at metsperformance.com to put a question through, n-i-c-k at metsperformance.com. We may get some hashtags for Instagram and that later on, yeah. but just stay tuned. Yeah. Thursday night, cool. Um, you're the host, over to Tyler. Introduce. Over, over to Tyler. So you want to just quickly run us around your background around uh, in, endurance sport and then what, what your sort of role with us predominantly is going to be um, over the next little while. Um, all right, so I guess my background in sport, endurance sport specifically, is triathlon mostly. Um, so mostly 
sort of long course at seventy point three distance full Ironman. So I've done six falls, I think. Race at Kona once. Race at World Champs for seventy point three. Race at World Champs for Cross Try, um, and then I think I've run maybe five standalone marathons, mountain bike races, few road races on the bike, uh, sort of. Bits and pieces of everything, but yeah, usually the full Ironman, the half Ironman, I guess, has been my focus and um, where I've put most of my energy. Um, any keen followers of the Mets Mastermind as well might recognise Tyler from the Road to 240. It was a series that Luke did a little while ago, uh, trying to get down to the two-hour 40 marathon. So if you haven't seen that, jump to the Mastermind and have a look at it. Um, not about seriously sort of documenting that journey, but obviously he's a gun in terms of endurance sport. So brings a lot of, sort of knowledge from an athlete side of things, but uh, particularly for our educational side of things, he's, he's helping out a lot. Uh, he's a PE teacher by trade. Uh, went last five years in PE. Five years, yeah, yeah, PE maths at secondary school. So a lot of what I'm doing here now is um, in the schools, the education side that we're, we're building up. So um, right, yeah, doing a lot of things there, but hopefully getting involved in maybe some coaching and um, with a bit of experience from, from the long course triathlon perspective. Yeah, absolutely. So definitely a valuable uh, addition to, to the team. So the team has grown to three, um, which is pretty exciting for 2019. Moving into today's content, as Luke mentioned before, we're going to cover a bit on blood doping. It has been in uh, the media a little bit lately. Um, you may have seen uh, up on Facebook where he shared the, I believe where he shared the article um, talking about a few of the cross-country skiers and even I think recently as today, if not yesterday, there was a couple of pro cyclists um, who got done as well. We're just going to cover off what blood doping is, what, what that whole scenario sort of looks like in terms of why these athletes have been uh, been in a little bit of trouble in what they're doing, uh, why it's illegal in the sport and what it actually does to the physiology. So uh, this is where Lucy has stepped in a bit because this is your, your area in terms of physiology, you're the expert uh, in this aspect. What are these guys actually doing? Why are these cross-country skis, pro cyclists, endurance athletes, blood doping? How, how is it actually improving their performance? What's their goal of going through that process? Yeah, cool. So. Blood doping is first and foremost illegal. Right? You're not allowed to do it. It's an illegal ergogenic aid. An ergogenic aid is something that improves performance. So you have illegal methods and you have legal methods. And I know we're going to go into that in a sec anyway, but a legal method would do altitude training or sleep in an altitude tent. An illegal way is basically an unnatural or an unsafe way to improve performance. So what blood doping specifically involves is you essentially will extract blood uh, from, from your body you'll then put it through a, a centrifuge. So what it does is blood's made up of plasma, red blood cells, white blood cells, and platelets. The red blood cells is where the oxygen gets carried. We, we like red blood cells. White blood cells fight infection, we get rid of that. We don't want that for, the, for the, this purpose. Platelets, they, they help you clot blood, we don't need that. Plasma is just fluid, it's really important in the blood, but for this circumstance, we don't want it. So they get rid of all that stuff, just leave the, the oxygen-rich red blood cells. They then allow their body to recover for a number of weeks, so their body is naturally going to recover. You go give blood, it's not like you run out of blood. Your body will then uh, create new red blood cells uh, to get you back to homeostasis, back to a resting level. So your body recovers, and then once it's fully recovered, they then inject the, the very um, red blood cell rich blood back into their veins, back into their, their system. Um, and they've then therefore boosted the proportion of red blood cells in their blood. Okay, So further to that, hematocrit is a term which, which is to do with how what percentage of your blood is essentially the good stuff, the red blood cells, versus what is plasma, which is just fluid. Okay, The normal range for an individual is somewhere around 45% will be the red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, 55% will be plasma. Okay, So most of your blood is actually plasma or fluid or water, so it can actually circulate. What we can do is 
naturally, depending on a bit of genetics, naturally we can get those red blood cells up to about 52%, which means our plasma is down to about 48%. So we can actually get uh, quite a bit of red blood cells in the blood naturally. Now, the normal range for a male is between 40 and 52%. For females, it's 38 to 48, 50%, okay? So we can naturally boost ourselves maybe to 50, 52% red blood cells through natural methods such as altitude training, etc. But the body has a limit. It, it doesn't want to become too much on the red blood cell side because if we get that to 55, 60, 65%, you're getting less and less fluid, your blood gets really thick, it's hard to circulate, uh, and you are at a massive risk of heart attack, stroke, etc. because you physically can't circulate that blood. So what these guys are doing, they're going above their body's natural capability. So they might be able to get to 52%, but they're actually going to 55, 56, 57%. Therefore, we have less plasma, more thick red blood cells, which is really good from an oxygen-carrying perspective. But one, it's, it's not natural. You shouldn't naturally get above that. Uh, and two, it's extremely performance-enhancing because you, you've essentially injected more red blood cells which carry oxygen, and it's just an unnatural way um, to improve performance. So that's what they're trying to do. Uh, and it's illegal because it's unsafe, it's unnatural, and, and it's performance enhancing in an unnatural way. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in really sort of short summary, they're basically taking blood out, taking out all the stuff they don't need, putting back in the stuff that they, they do want, boosting up that red blood cell count, um, and, and enhancing their performance overall. So obviously an illegal method, and, and these guys being caught uh, for the, the purpose of fair sport is obviously a good thing. Um, what are some of the dangers of these athletes doing it though? You sort of touched on um, very quickly there some of the maybe potential risks. This isn't a new method either. They, they, they guys have been doing this for, for years and being, being caught, so sort of thinking back to, towards even like the Lance Armstrong sort of pro cycling days. Um, what, what are some of the dangers of these athletes performing this, this, this blood doping or this method of doping um, to their health, to their to like long-term, what their, what their careers might look like? What, what are some of the results of that? Yes, there's an increase in blood viscosity. So viscosity is just to do with thickness. So as I said before, if we increase the red blood cells, as a proportion, the plasma comes down, that's the fluid. So think of it like, I don't know, you go, um, you want to make up a sports drink, a one litre sports drink, you're supposed to put two scoops in or whatever it is, right? If you go put four scoops in, which is essentially what we're doing, adding red blood cells, um, you might not get too much extra blood overall, but it's now it's thicker, it's sludgier, it's harder to circulate. So that's essentially what they're doing. The reason it's dangerous is because the thicker your blood, uh, the harder your heart has to work to circulate it. So what happens back in the, the Tour de France days, back in uh, Lance Armstrong's era, you know yourself. What, what did the what did the athletes do? At, you know, they, they woke up at three a.m. in the morning, jumped on the wind trainer just to circulate the blood. They started moving their legs, circulate keep the, the blood, up. keep the heart rate up. Because if they didn't, this thick, sludgy blood would clot, cause a stroke or a heart attack because it's yeah. so thick. So the dangers are huge, and and the to be honest, like the commitment to doping is so high. Like yeah. not only do you have to go and ride two hundred k's, you then have to. Wake yeah. up three times yeah. a night to jump on the wind train and circulate the blood so you don't die. Yeah, we would think that when and this that they think even before Armstrong days, this was happening that multiple guys did have heart attacks in their sleep and not wake up. And we we'd think, well, yeah, maybe we need to cut back on our doping. But yeah, so you're saying the commitments there. These guys weren't cutting back on their doping. They just came up with ways of getting up and some calisthenics during the night or sitting on a trainer just yep. to stop that resting heart rate getting so low and I guess there's always they're always looking for ways around it, I suppose, which Yeah, so it's a pretty yeah, pretty pretty sort of full on commitment. If you if you've watched the um the the Netflix documentary, uh, I think it's Icarus, where where the, one of the, the guys running the documentary tries to recreate Armstrong's doping strategy, it's 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 a full on process. It's a, it's unreal to see 
what lengths these guys will go to. So in, in that regard, we covered sort of the, the illegal component of it, what the risks are. How can we get this benefit by doing it legally? Like, what are, what are the ways that you can still get that same performance benefit, improve the composition of the blood, but not be doing it through a doping measure that's mm-hmm. that's an illegal aspect of the sport? Yeah, so we do altitude training um, to legally boost the, the percentage of red blood cells. It's, it is going to help. It's not going to help to that extent because the body has natural limits. So basically what altitude training involves is two methods of it. There's live high, train low, which I'll go into in a second. There's also if you live at altitude, your body will adapt to it. So at altitude, there's less oxygen. or It's, it's thinner air. Your body has to work harder to circulate it. So long story short, what happens is the receptors in our brain, uh, it detects that there's less oxygen in the air. Okay. So I'm going to go through the process of how we go to altitude and then our body actually adapts to it. So we, we go to altitude with less oxygen, um, the hypothalamus in the brain, it, it sends a signal to our kidneys to create EPO. Now you probably have heard of EPO before, EPO is that bad drug that they inject. Okay, it's naturally a naturally occurring hormone that the kidneys produce, but we also can inject it illegally and synthetically as well. So it's, that, that does a very similar thing to blood doping, but it's a naturally occurring hormone. So your kidneys create EPO, EPO then tell our bone marrow, so things like a femur, for example, to create red blood cells. Right, red blood cells have hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the oxygen-carrying pigment of that. So essentially what we're doing is we're going to altitude with less oxygen. Our body then releases EPO, the hormone, which then creates red blood cells, boosts our oxygen-carrying capacity, improves our, our in theory, our VO2 max. Right? So uh, a good example is actually anyone who follows um, Bike Chaser, Cam Nichols, he did a, an experiment with box altitude. So he essentially, what he did is rather than going and training at a high altitude, you sleep in it. So you sleep in it for about 12 hours a day for three weeks of continuous exposure. And it will that will give you the same benefits as actually being in it all the time. So he he did his pre-blood analysis, it was 46% hematocrit, so that's well within the 40 to 52, that's fine. Uh, and after, I think, I'm not sure if it's three weeks, don't, don't, um, don't quote me on that, but it was a number of weeks that he was sleeping every day in this altitude gent and he went up to 48%. So from 46 to 48, that's within that legal range of 40 to 52. So I know back in, uh, about 10 years ago, it may have changed. I know that if anybody hit more than 52%. Yeah, that's before. Yeah, yeah, and they couldn't, they had no test that would discern between naturally yeah. occurring EPO and synthetic EPO, so yeah. they... Put a percentage on it. Yeah, I think it was 50%. Beyond that, mm. there was still no proof, so I think they gave you a, a one-month holiday from racing. Yeah. But then the problem with that was they basically said, we can't catch you, so we're going to allow you to dope yourselves up to 50% yeah. and you'll be okay. And I think that changed a little bit because if some guys were naturally performing well at 42%, they got yeah. a bigger scope than a guy's naturally performing at 48%. Yeah. He's not going to get as much benefit mm. from that doping. Yeah. yeah, I've heard 52, 50 wouldn't surprise me as well, but they put a limit on it like, all right, this is what we reckon is naturally occurring. Yeah. And above that is yeah. generally yeah, an automatic suspension, whether yeah. it's a month or longer. For doping, that reminds me. Let's go back to biological passport in the next one because that's related yeah. to that. So finishing off altitude training. So um, the the best method is to live high, train low. So you, you want to sleep in an altitude tent, which simulates the effects of altitude, and you've got to be in there for twelve hours. It's a long time. Twelve hours a day for three weeks. So you literally have dinner and sleep in there, um, and then you can train in a normal environment. The problem with training at a high altitude is that because there's less oxygen, it's hard, you're working harder, you really lose the quality of the training session, you can't keep the intensity up. So you're better off to sleep in altitude where we don't need oxygen, like the oxygen demand is so low, we're just sleeping in it anyway. You get the EPO benefits while sleeping, but then you maintain your training intensity uh, at a normal environment. Yeah, which is yeah. for a, like a muscular system benefit, if you can't get your cardiovascular up to that real high intensity because of the lack of oxygen, I suppose you can't push your muscles to the same 
stress levels as you would at, at sea level? Yeah, I mean, yeah, ABO2 diff goes, so if you've got less oxygen coming in, you're going to diffuse uh, less across as well. So it's, yeah, it's pretty much it's a good in one aspect. Yeah. Not so good in at the other end. Yeah, I mean, your oxygen saturation levels go down. Like, so your, your hemoglobin saturation right now at sea level, like 98% of our hemoglobin are covered in oxygen. You go to altitude, it might be like 85%. So you're getting less less of that oxygen is, is being carried around, therefore you get less delivery to the muscles, and then the muscles, uh, because of the pressure differences, mm. they, they struggle to diffuse it across as well. Yeah. So, um, But it's an interesting point you make, because altitude training not only will improve, the primary goal of it is to improve your, your red blood cell count, but it does indirectly help your diffusion rate across the muscles as well, to an extent, because the body works as one unit. It can't just improve one area, it can't just improve mm. your cardiovascular, it's got to do the muscular as well. Yep. Um, just on that, before we get to biological passport, the, just touch on the the ideal dosage in terms of what you what, what's the minimum stimulus you need to be able to touch on, uh, to to be able to get that altitude training benefit. Because I don't like people have probably seen there's there's altitude houses now. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go in and do like a one hour session and then not do anything for the rest of the week. Is is that enough, or what what do we need to be looking at to be able to actually see that altitude training benefit yep. or that altitude stimulus, if you like? to be able to see a change in our cardiovascular system, see a change in what's going on internally. Yeah, look, I'd have to double check what the minimum stimulus is. I know the general guidelines are 12 hours a day of continuous exposure. So you need to be at 12 hours continuously, so half your day, you yeah. need to be there for three weeks um, at an altitude equivalent of 2,100 to 2,500 metres above sea level, okay, which isn't too bad. That, I think that brings down the oxygen. So at the moment it's 21%, brings it the equivalent of about 13%. Um, so the people who go out and do like a, like a one hour session, I know a lot of gyms, they say come and do a one hour altitude training session, session yeah. on a spin bike. Does it give you the benefit? I'm not gonna say it gives you no benefit whatsoever, but save your money. Save your money. Um, the, the decrease in intensity of that session for the benefit of the altitude probably is negligible. The only time I'd say that's beneficial is if you are, like if you're gonna climb Mount Everest or something, that's yeah. specific training, specific. so you're getting used to it. Now, I know yeah. a couple of mountaineers have come in to do mm. that with us and they, they wanted to do oxygen training or however they, they talked about it. But um, specificity is obviously the number one principle for training programs. So if they are going to be at altitude, then getting used to just the difference in oxygen saturation levels and stuff is, is beneficial. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. Um, mentioned before biological passport. That's probably one of the final, final things we will touch on before we sort of wrap things up for the blood doping aspect. What, what is that for an athlete? What are, we, what are we talking about when we have a biological passport? We mentioned some brief numbers in terms of percentages of what markers that we're, that we're looking at, uh, like WADA and ASADA are looking at for what is doping and what isn't. What do they do now to try and prevent that sort of variance? Like you said, Tyler, before with some athletes who are naturally good at say 42%, but they can now boost up to 50, as opposed to the athlete who's naturally good at 48%, who can then only yeah. go an extra 2%. Two, two what, what do they do now to try and prevent prevent that happening, prevent the guys who are naturally on that lower end of the spectrum boosting up massively and getting these massive performance gains? What, what, What's the system in place? Yeah, so, I mean, essentially, uh, and I might actually handball back to either of you because I know a bit about it, but it's not exactly my area. So, biological passport is a, it's a baseline. So, you might get asked to take, you know, the, the, the water might come around and take a, a blood sample, etc., and they'll, they'll get a, a baseline of where your, your levels are at. Now, there's obviously going to be a natural variation up or down depending on your training and, and if you've been at altitude, so on and so forth. Uh, but they have a, a limitation. I'm not sure exactly what that number is, but it would say if you're at 42% um, red blood cells, for example, hematocrit, and then that all of a sudden raised to like 51%, that's a pretty big discrepancy. That, that's, yeah. that would be 
uh, a fairly safe assumption that there's something artificial going on there. So there's a, a range that happens, and they might get tested, oh, who knows, you know, the pros might get tested monthly, and some people might get tested every three years or whatever, but this, it accounts for some natural variation, but you can't really cheat the system, you can, let me go ahead, but you can't really cheat the system um, because if, you, if you're not doping and they take your biological passport and then you start to dope, you're in, you're in a bit of trouble. But what you can do is, let's say they take it while you're doping and that's your baseline, well, you just got to keep doping yeah. <laughs> and you can keep it within natural variation. So, yeah, so I think the EPO tests, we were saying before there was no t way to discern between natural and artificial, but I think that's, they're beyond that now. They can tell the difference and they can test for artificial EPO. So. Yeah, Luke's spoken about blood doping. I guess that the tough thing with blood doping is there's no foreign bodies being introduced, so there's nothing to look for except yeah. for that number of, of what is the percentage of red blood cells. So, yeah, that just, I think anyone that's on an elite pathway might be with a, a national body or an Olympic pathway, they're going to be in, they're going to be sort of on the radar of a WADA and a SAD or whatever the national body is, and so they're going to have a long, a long record of blood values yeah. that, you know, you can't. There's no foreign body, there's just those red blood cells, but if there's a dramatic change that's unexplainable from just from training, well, that's, you know, they're your, your red flags, and um, that's the idea of this. We're not looking for foreign bodies, but we're looking for abnormal changes, you know, performance spikes, I suppose. And it's an interesting point you mentioned as well. Uh, I know there was a couple of guys who got uh, tested at Masters Cycling Nationals last year, so it's not just necessarily your elite athletes we are talking in this case the the guys that we use at the start cross-country skis etc racing at world world class sort of level um they will test down sub elite and, and in some cases the top end top end age groups as well for for some of these so it's it, like it's important to remember that all these uh, all these doping techniques that we are talking about are illegal methods of, of performance and we're not no, by no means we're not, we're not recommending any of them at all do it in a clean clean way go do altitude training do what you need to do uh, naturally um, but yeah some of these uh, some are, someone at maybe a sub elite or an amateur level may may or may not have that biological passport so it might be harder to pick up um, but they definitely do still test uh, down lower in the ranks yeah. particularly if you are seen as putting out some abnormal performances mm -hmm. uh, I think it's happening happen. more and more I think there was a yeah. cycling club in Melbourne area a few years ago that had quite a large number of people test positive for a substance and I remember at Melbourne Ironman a few years ago they were testing podium all podium in all age groups getting tested they crossed the line yeah. and I did hear about a um, couldn't tell you the age group but um, mm -hmm. a guy that won Kona for his age group then got tested out of competition a month or so later and had that strip so yeah that's what these are illegal and it is it is starting to flow down and, and testing is starting to take place a bit more often at that sub elite level yeah absolutely how big do you think it is the problem with doping do you think it's really widespread or is it uh it's an interesting one it's something that you sort of particularly in something like cycling we, we sort of know after all this sort of lance armstrong uh, story finally eventuated. We know that it's been happening for decades on end, all the way throughout um, throughout different sports as well. We saw the, pretty much the entire Russian athletics team was all banned from the previous Olympics because of it. There was only a handful of athletes who got to compete. So, um, in, in terms of like knowing what how, what the spread is across amateur racing, it's, it's pretty difficult, isn't it? Without knowing the like who's doing what. Um, and everything's sort of even more secretive. I guess it's a lot probably harder at the elite level, but as, as we've seen, there's still obviously guys willing to do it. It's more of a case of um, 
what, what, what does that individual athlete think there's at stake? Obviously, things like uh, age group world championships, people are taking it quite seriously. We know there's a lot of age group racers who are, who are quite sort of professional about the way they go out there training, their racing. Um, so how widespread the problem is, from my opinion, who, who knows? But I think it's still definitely something we need to consider and look at. Um, yeah, I think it, it's, it's something you're going to be constantly combating. People are going to find new ways. I mean, new tests come in for EPO. So what do people do? They start working back on the blood doping side of things. Um, yeah. yeah, for me, I think, I've not been exposed, but I'd, I'd imagine blood doping is going to require a certain level of medical knowledge and a certain level of equipment. So is that occurring amateur levels of... I wouldn't say no, but it, it's not a, a, a simple procedure and there, there are inherent risks involved in it. EPO injections, on the other hand, you know, it's not, it is something that is used regularly in hospitals, people on dialysis and things like that. You know, it is used and I have heard stories from hospitals of, of um, I had, there's one particular story I heard of a, a guy playing like a, a C grade local tennis match. Um, who had access through a hospital and was using APO as a performance enhancing type thing. So I don't know, hear stories like that and maybe it is widespread. It's it's gonna be hard to tell and we're probably never gonna have resources at an amateur level to yeah. to know Good for sure. Yeah. So Yeah. I think um, I think at the amateur level you're not gonna get much blood transfusion. I think that's pretty yeah. pretty, pretty high tech yeah. stuff. You might get someone, you know, steroids, you know, yes, but mm. maybe not in the endurance athlete field, but it will help you recover in between. I think at the elite level, I reckon it's pretty widespread, to be yeah. honest. Um, and look, don't quote me on this, this is not based on facts, this is talking to some pretty big big players in the industry, some pretty high-end coaches thinking that, you know, particularly in athletics, it's pretty big. Yeah. Cycling, we've, we've seen, cross-country so, yeah. skiing, we've seen the pressure to perform, they've got sponsorships to deal with, they need a win, you know, there's a lot of pressure on. If one does it, the whole team's, you know, is pressured to do it. Um, Blood transfusion at the top end, yeah, maybe. It's a pretty effective way. It's better than doing EPO. You might as well just skip the middle, man. Just get rid yep. of it all, chuck it back in, mm. drop done. Um, oh, it's instant. It's, 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 yeah, it's yeah, instant. EPO yeah. takes time to yeah. stimulate and wait for those blood cells. Yeah. To, yeah, just skip the middle, man. Don't worry about the hormone. Just yeah. artificially just put it back in. Put so back in. I, I, reckon, um, I reckon at the elite level, it's a big concern. I'm not yeah. too concerned about the, the amateur level at the yeah. moment. I think there'd be a very small minority doing it. Um, but I think the elite level is, again, I, I, I hope not, but I think it's uh, it's a big problem. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those one of those things you talk about all day. How widespread how widespread is it? But I think we'll wrap it up there for for today. We've pretty pretty much covered uh, everything there is to blood doping. Um, again, welcoming Tyler to the team. Um, and yeah, the new format of Physiology Secrets. Uh, so this is episode sixty three, and we'll we'll get this up. Uh, for the first one and then yeah, like we said before Thursday nights about seven o'clock We'll get that episode up every week um, And then that once a month we'll get that the the ask Mets if you like uh, Podcast episode where you can ask your questions. So hopefully you enjoyed this one uh, Look forward to doing a handful of more episodes and getting some guests on the podcast soon um, It'll be up on all the all the sites. So we'll link everything below uh, and leave a little description as well So uh, thanks for tuning in guys, and we'll see you in the next episode